Hello, my name is James Waldron and I'm a Portfolio GP in Nottingham and First Five Lead for the RCGP Vale of Trent faculty. And I also co-host the GP Notebook study groups. Welcome to the GP Notebook podcast, where we discuss bite-sized topics aimed at all of those working in primary care. You can find us on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Please follow us to receive notifications about new episodes. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review to help others find us. You can also follow us on Twitter at GP Notebook for more information about new podcast episodes and study groups. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jamius Dodgers. Finally, you can visit gpnotebookpodcast.com for podcast episodes, show notes, and gpnotebookeducation.com to find out more about upcoming study group meetings. In this episode, we'll be discussing menopause and HRT. So, I've chosen to speak today about menopause because, well, menopause is a hot topic at the moment, and as is HRT, and it's coming to the forefront of many consultations, much more so than in previous years. Of course, menopause is very frequently in the media with news articles dedicated to it and celebrities sharing their stories and experiences on social media and television. Notably, Davina McCaw's recent documentary, Sex, Myths and the Menopause, have brought the subject to our patient's mind and is it understandable that more people seek help and guidance in this challenging area, maybe seeking help for the first time or maybe realising they're only starting to understand that their symptoms are attributed to menopause. What's more... As clinician, our understanding of menopause, its identification and treatment, particularly with HRT, has changed as research and understanding has progressed in this area. What once was more of a tentative, only start if you're really sure, stop as soon as possible, and very thorough counselling of, you must be very aware of the side effects and risks if you really want to start this, primary care's approach has been challenged by an increasing increasing understanding of the true long-term risks and rewards of HRT. Patients are better informed, and so we must be too. In the coming weeks, I'll be fortunate enough to be speaking to a reproductive medicine and menopause subspecialist, Dr. Sam Dobson, on some of the more challenging areas and newer areas of HRT and menopause, including tips on how to prescribe testosterone prescriptions, discussing around bespoke HRT and other similar topics. However, Today, we will be visiting an overview of the definitions, identification and impact on the patient of menopause, as well as some of the counselling aspects that we might encounter supporting our patients. So, what is menopause? In brief, menopause is the ending of a woman's menstrual cycles, identified as greater than 12 months of amenorrhea. And of course, this is a major simplification. More technically, and I envisage people at home closing their eyes, picturing partially remembered hormone charts from long past medical school pathology lectures, we see a lack of ovarian response to LH and FSH with a corresponding constant drop in estrogen levels. So when does it start? Well, at the time where there are around about a thousand oocytes left within the ovaries, the responsiveness to the cycles of FSH and LH deteriorates. During this time, what we call the perimenopause, and in some cases, for many months or even years before, which is a fact not often well understood, FSH can vary highly, which makes measurements of FSH during this time unreliable, which of course can impact on diagnosis. Eventually, each cycle is anovulatory, less estrogen, less endometrium, and the endometrium is not stimulated, and so persistent amenorrhea and persistent FSH are greater than 30. This is the menopause. The question that usually comes up in consultations is, I think I'm going through the change. 
it is expected that it will eventually come to pass for all people. But when it does, actually, when does it actually happen? I mean, generally speaking, menopause happens between 45 and 55 with an average age of 51. But the diagnosis is usually a clinical one. And that's defined as 12 consecutive months of amenorrhea in a woman of greater than 45 years with a uterus. Although actually, if you don't have a uterus, how do you diagnose it? Well, in fact, the definition there is symptoms of menopause, symptoms of the menopause greater than 45 years without a uterus. So again, that can help people understand what they're experiencing. Um, but as a side note, I think it's quite important to mention the difficulties we can get into when we're requesting hormone blood tests, which are often asked for by patients. They want a blood test to determine what's going on. And in fact, NICE recommends that the FSH tests are not done routinely, not routinely offered. Um, as mentioned, they can vary very highly, um, but can be useful in patients who have had may have had early menopause, premature ovarian failure, or atypical symptoms. And the other really important case, and often a conundrum in general practice, is it can be helpful in patients over 50 who are on a progesterone-only contraception like the depot. And this can be a little bit tricky, and there are some fairly extensive guidelines for contraception around the menopause on the FSRH website. Um, and furthermore, the FSRH suggests that whilst a single FSA, uh, FHS level um, of over than 30 indicates a degree of ovarian sufficiency, it doesn't necessarily mean sterility. So if, to avoid um, any conception surprises, they suggest to repeat FSH on two samples four to six weeks apart. Early menopause is defined as menopause within 40 to 45 years old. Um, and as mentioned, checking FSH can be helpful in guiding you to the diagnosis. But remember that it can still be quite fluctuant for a very long time. Early in this would be deemed premature ovarian insufficiency, where an FSH and further hormonal profiles are helpful to guide onwards referral. However, the timings of this are not often clear cut. And there may be many months or years of irregular periods leading up to the menopause, which is deemed the perimenopause. And it's it, this perimenopause that we often miss as clinicians and sometimes something we can certainly do better on. Perimenopause, in fact, is a major issue and something very worth focusing on. It can be underappreciated by the patient. They're still having periods. Do they recognize that this is perimenopause if they are spacing out and becoming more irregular, they recognize that this is what's happening. They may be simply tolerated by the patient. Whilst many women have few or very mild symptoms, others may just feel it is their loss in life with personal beliefs, outside factors, fear of medication preventing them from seeking help. It could be mistaken for other things. And think of the number of patients that we see with depression and anxiety, with racing hearts, flushes and irritability, these may well be misdiagnosed, especially because often at this time of people's lives, there may be other changes at that time, older children, illnesses and loved ones, changing in caring responsibility or work. And these things can have a huge impact on the patient's life. Do not underestimate the impact on problems with work, problems at home, problems with relationships and sex. Impact on other medical issues and many other parts of their lives can be impacted by the perimenopause. And so it's important that we identify it. And the consequences can be really significant for the patients and families. And again, another point I'd really like to emphasize, for instance, the classical symptoms of the hot flush, they often spring to my, the first thing that springs to most people's minds and are present in 75% of women. But these can last for up to five or even 10 years after menopause or even longer without management. Here we can think about specific hormone changes that are happening just to understand why this is happening. And in fact, it's the raised FSH that causes it. 
The FSH levels affect the temperature regulation in the hypothalamus, leading to vasodilation and flushing, and this very troublesome symptom. It's also worth giving a mind to the patient's relationships and sex life, not only having to manage sweats, but a reduced libido, and as many um, of, as 50% of people getting urogenital atrophy as estrogen drops. This causes thinning, reduced elasticity, and eventually atrophy in the vagina, as well as reduced vaginal secretions, resulting in dyspareunia, as well as increased tendency to UTI. And left unmanaged, as you can imagine, this caused lasting harm, both physically and psychosexually. Though, fortnight, uh, though fortunately, genitourinary symptoms are often well managed with vaginal estrogens, which are an easy and usually low-risk intervention. Um, though to be sure, uh, to make sure that you use them for long enough, as they can take some real time for symptoms to improve, but can be life-changing for patients. Also think that estrogen has a profound effect on the bones and can hasten osteoporosis with up to 20% of bone mass lost in the first five years of menopause. And so other factors need to be taken into account, especially in early menopausal patients. HRT, when used, can delay the bone loss whilst, whilst used and reduce the risk of fractures within just two years. And in under 60s, it's more effective than bisphosphonates that's reducing that bone loss. So I, I think you know, when I was thinking about this, the above symptoms are what's springs to clinicians' minds when we consider menopause, but the impact of the change of mood, drive, increased anxiety, along with changes in cognition and memory, the oft-reported brain fog, can be the icing on the cake for many women. It significantly has consequences for work and life too, and it's said that over 4.5 million women of menopausal ages are in the workplace, and that 14 million working days a year are lost to menopause, with 9 out of 10 menopausal women saying that symptoms impact on their work. So it is clear that there is a case here. The impact can be very significant for a patient, and many women suffer in silence. The good news is that we in primary care and in secondary care can help. So what is it that we can do? I mean, so to quote the first answer from every medical uh, finals medical exam student, take a thorough history. That's the first thing to do. But be mindful that of the far-reaching impacts of the diagnosis may be having to the patient. Find out what matters to them, but also it'll help to guide you to some of the symptoms um, that they may not be aware that are related. They may be simply putting up with it. And this is often a case that we see. Uh, the other plea I've had from menopause specialist colleagues is to be on the lookout for perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms, even when it isn't their presenting complaint. Perhaps the lady who has newly developed anxiety and irritability may not be anxious. Could this be perimenopausal as well? Think about the history of the patient. Think about the associated symptoms and the time of, of a patient's life. So what can we do about it? Um, well, practical solutions are a good place to start. Open windows, lighter bedclothes, manage weight and exercise are generally um, are generally helpful, but also being positive that we can help um, and help a patient understand the part of their life that they're going through and help them with their symptoms. CBT can be of really good use here too with help with anxiety, worry, and adjustment to symptoms. In fact, there's some evidence that can help with a degree of flushing. We can advise using lubricants during sex and, of course, mention that while less likely, pregnancy can still be a possibility in the perimenopause, so consider contraception as well and their contraceptive needs. Additionally, um, as, as we, we hopefully frequently do, advising on exercise, diet, vitamin D and calcium-rich foods can help protect bones and moderation of caffeine and alcohol can ease many symptoms. But I suppose the big question that we ask ourselves is, so to HRT or not to HRT, excuse the pun. 
Not so long ago, HRT was often started when all else had failed and we perhaps no longer had a choice with concerns over breast cancer, cardiovascular risk and VTEs being top of our mind to do no harm to our patients, evidently the most important part of medicine. This was largely due to the result, the first results of the Women's Health Initiative in 2002, um, a large trial which showed that HRT had more detrimental than beneficial effects. So use reduced and the results were widely publicized. And this is what we used to believe and what many of us would have been taught at medical school. However, medicine is changing a pace and our scientific understanding has, has moved on. And we now understand that benefits can far great, are far greater and are better informed of the true risks in relation to taking HRT, uh, which may come as no surprise as no longer to be thought as significant as they were before. However, we as clinicians can be slow to catch up um, and education is always changing, part of the reason why you're here today. And though the guidance can um, substantially change from the newer reviews in the last few years, notably in, um, from the Lancet in 2019, the prescription of HRT still remains, remains an anxiety-inducing prospect for many GPs. It can be really hard to know what to tell the patient. And so here I will try, briefly try to demystify um, in the last part of the talk. So it's probably worth starting worth starting with breast cancer. Um, and this is one of the first things that patients ask about is it's the most widely known risk and often a patient's greatest fear. Um, and it will be at the forefront of their mind as most of us will know somebody who have who has uh, who has struggled with breast cancer. Um, though it may be noticed that at every age more women die of heart disease than of breast cancer, but the latter is usually the main worry for patients. So what is the actual risk? Uh, the four-mentioned WHI study was considered flawed, in fact, using an older population with a high BMI without considering the actual instance and the fact that they may have detected occult cancers. More recent evidence from the Lancet paper for patients on five years of HRT showed much less significant change in instance, although it did show some increase. Risk was measured over 20 years with continuous combined changing, uh, continuous combined HRT changing risks from 3 in 50 to 4 in 50, sequential combined from 4 in 70 to 5 in 70, estrogen only from 13 in 200 to 14 in 200, and vaginal estrogens causing no change in risk um, that was noted. As, by, as might be expected, the risk increases with longer term use, but then does decline later, emphasising the importance of review and impact on patients and making sure that we are aware of what people are taking. So that's a lot, a lot of numbers. What does this mean in terms of counselling our patients? And the numbers are all very well and good, but it doesn't necessarily show a real tangible outcome for a patient. There is a great graph which we'll link to in the description, which really helps you know, explain to patients with this infographic to, um, to explain the risk. But essentially, um, for every 23 patients diagnosed with breast cancer each year, an additional four cases will happen in women on combined HRT. An extra four. However, things to bear in mind, there are also additional four cases from people on combined oral contraceptive, three additional cases in smokers, five additional cases in women who drink more than two units of alcohol a day, and an additional 24 cases in women who are overweight or obese. An additional 24 cases. The emphasis here is that several very much modifiable risk factors have overall much greater impact in the breast cancer risk than that of HRT, though patients worry much more about the medication. In fact, we might approach this that the, that the relief afforded to a patient on HRT might actually help motivate, facilitate and support someone in the lifestyle, uh, in the life-saving lifestyle changes. 
in fact, I might emphasize here that there are actually seven fewer cases in women uh, of breast cancer in women who do uh, um, at least 2.5 hours of moderate exercise per week. A great goal that we might all aspire to. Certainly, I would like to <laughs> increase. There is a chance to educate and empower our patients to lifestyle changes that will benefit them across every system of the body. And this may be a good opportunity to impact on other aspects of their health. This leads us nicely on to the cardiovascular risk that was discussed in the 2002 WHI paper. Menopause is in fact an independent heart, heart disease risk factor. But as you might imagine, lifestyle changes have a much greater impact on the cardiovascular health. But HRT does have its part to play. It's now been seen that HRT actually decreases total cholesterol, LDL, and insulin resistance. But not only that, it can improve vascular remodeling of arteries. This leads to a reduction in CHD if started with within six years of menopause. And combined with a healthy diet, the implications actually might be really significant. And in practical terms, women at risk of CHD may benefit from HRT and can help to prevent coronary artery uh, coronary events from occurring. Though it's advised that if greater than 60 years, that an ultra low dose should be started. And I might emphasize here in cases where starting so late or other more complex situations, this would be a great time to consult a menopause specialist. Finally, the other major risk we consider with many hormonal medications is the risk of VTE, the need to check and review the risk factors particularly migraine with aura, BMI, blood pressure, previous history, as amongst other things, is well ingrained in us from COCP checks. But it can be a real challenge to balance risks with rewards for patients. The fact that VTE risk naturally increases with the age, but adding estrogen preparations, both COCP and HRT, can increase this further. So each patient's choice needs to be carefully considered. Fortunately for us, in HRT's case, the risk entirely is entirely root-dependent, and transdermal preparations do not increase the risk of VTE due to the preparation bypassing the liver and first-pass metabolism. Although I must mention here um, that it doesn't actually apply to transdermal combined contraception, and you may see patients on that or start patients on that, which still does carry an eightfold increase in risk over not using contraception. So patches offer a convenient and safe route for a lot of patients, which may have increased risk of VTE. That being said, the risk of oral preparations is dose dependent. And so, again, in these tricky kit situations, please speak to a specialist. Um, there may be options for starting with much lower doses in patients with intermediate risk. So I suppose the question we were asking was, so HRT or not to HRT? Um, each decision needs to be made with the patient, exploring their wants, understandings and beliefs. But as we've discussed, our understandings of the risks and benefits of HRT have grown and we've discovered that it is much safer than we once, once thought. In fact, the evidence is that use of HRT between 50 and 59, in fact, reduces overall moral mortality. And not only that, they relieve the myriad of symptoms that have profound effects on patients' mental health, quality of life, we can make a real difference there if we take the time to explore what is really going on with our patients. So hopefully this has been a helpful outline, a helpful bite-sized outline of some of the background in the changing landscape of menopause and HRT. It's on our minds, it's on our patients' minds, and I feel that in primary care we can continue to do better with diagnosis, treatment, and appreciating the impact that you can have on a patient's day-to-day -day life. I hope you've enjoyed this first talk and that you join Dr. Dobson and myself for the next podcasts where we will be looking at different HRT preps and prescriptions, simplifying treatment and exploring the use of testosterone and other formulations.
So thank you all for listening. We hope you found this podcast helpful. Please do have a look at the show notes that accompany this episode at gpnotebookpodcast.com. And we'd be very grateful if you would consider following the podcast and leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Feel free to get in touch via social media at gpnotebook or email support at gpnotebook.com if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts. You should also visit us at gpnotebookeducation.com to register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups and download free resources and shortcuts to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. Many thanks. Thanks.